Hello and welcome to this episode of The Roadmap, the podcast covering best practices and trending topics in auto finance. I'm Nicole Casperson, Deputy Editor of Auto Finance News and your host for this podcast, presented by Auto Finance Excellence. Auto Finance Excellence provides members with an unparalleled opportunity to gain professional development and networking resources in this competitive industry. Today's podcast is generously supported by McGlinchey Stafford. McGlinchey Stafford's attorneys offer leading edge legal advice for the auto finance industry, working hand in hand with clients to comply and thrive in a complex market. Learn more at McGlinchey.com. The information we cover today will also provide just a taste of what you will experience at our spring event, Auto Finance Accelerate, produced by Auto Finance News and Royal Media, Auto Finance Accelerate is comprised of three separate events, Auto Finance Sales and Marketing Summit, Auto Finance Innovation Summit, and Auto Finance Risk Summit, and will take place at the Omni San Diego, May 13th through the 16th. Our goal here at The Roadmap is to welcome enlightened and thought-provoking guests from across the auto finance industry to talk out key issues and opportunities, and we have two great guests for this episode. Joining us is Eddie Yonker, VP Information Protection and Chief Information Security Officer at Hyundai Capital America. Eddie will also be joining us for a presentation at our Auto Finance Risk Summit. And Richik Sakar, Chief Privacy Officer and Commercial and Consumer Litigation Attorney with McGlinchey Stafford. And one of Richik's colleagues at McGlinchey Stafford is joining uh, our, speaker, our speaker faculty at the Auto Finance Innovation Summit as well. Uh, thank you both for joining us today on this podcast and happy to have you yeah thanks for having us nicole great opportunity thanks nicole of course um so just based on our speakers titles it may be clear that we are tackling on uh, uh information security or or data security um and you know some of the the few important questions every lender needs to consider when collecting consumer data are, you know, what data are you collecting? Is it regulated? How are you using it? Are you adequately protecting it during storage, use, in transit, and during disposition? How long are you retaining it? With, with all those questions in mind, how can lenders ensure that they are focusing in uh, the, the right areas to mature data security and privacy programs? Uh, Eddie, would you like to tackle this one first? Yeah, absolutely, Nicole. I, I, many things come to mind, and I know we don't have all day to talk about this topic, but this is just an ongoing topic, I think, probably in, in any organization that is already established in these program areas. But I'll tell you, <clears throat> many things come to mind, and I'll, I'll share some key items here. But uh, first and foremost, what, what immediately comes to mind to me when it comes to maturing these kinds of programs it comes down to leadership. Uh, so sort of the rhetorical question is, what, why do you have these components in your organization? Or, or as the senior leaders in the organization, whether it's a board or the C-suite, right? Are you checking some kind of box or you think that you should have these capabilities just because, or are you being deliberate about uh, engaging in these programs to the appropriate degree? So one of the things that I've seen, I've seen multiple surveys over the past year, I would say, from lender CEOs who list 
cybersecurity is, is a top one, two, three risk concern in, in their organization. So my rhetorical question to those CEOs is, what are you doing about that concern? Are you going to uh, conferences talking about those concerns, bringing them back, saying, hey, this is a concern? Uh, are you talking to the right people, like your privacy folks, like your security folks, to determine where you are as an organization and where you want to be in a deliberate way? Uh, so my suggestion um, to, to, as an answer to that, that question is that the most senior organizational leadership needs to engage and, and understand the threat landscape and the associated risks to that organization. Um, there needs to be advocacy to ensure that there's regular transparency with the board of directors if, if that's implemented, or to the C-suite executives to ensure that they maintain risk awareness and can provide appropriate direction and oversight to these programs. That's absolutely critical, and I think if you look historically, and I'll use InfoSec as a, as a, as a good example, for years it was viewed as some IT related, that's an IT problem, therefore it needs to reside in IT. I would suggest, especially these days, as, as we continue to listen in the media to all the data breaches being reported, uh, tucking InfoSec under IT will only create a conflict of interest for a CIO at varying points in time, whose primary focus is to deliver services and projects within time and budget constraints. And, and that is not the focus of an InfoSec component or a privacy component. So I think just that little distinction is a critical one, especially in the financial services sector. Uh, I, I think it's important, too, to as you mature your programs, um, you, you need to determine what's the regulatory environment and, and what, if any, do you have any other special requirements on what you need to include in your capabilities or, or uh, somewhere in your programs. So, um, for example, you know, here in the financial services sector, we have GLBA, the new CCPA, NYDFS cybersecurity reg, just to mention a few that establish requirements around what you need to do or how mature some of your security and privacy capabilities need to be. And so I would ask people like myself and like Richick, right, do, do you have an inventory of the material privacy and security laws, regulations, guidance, whatever it is that establishes requirements for your environment, do you know what they are? Do you have that inventory? If, if you don't, that's a good starting place to continue to mature your programs and once you understand that then you need to figure out where's the data and how does it move throughout your organization both internally and externally by the way and then uh, as you understand where the data is perform a risk assessment on to ensure that there's there's adequate controls to protect the movement of that data the storage the transmission uh, and, and develop a plan to remediate any gaps within risk, risk tolerance levels. So um, along the way there, again, in the spirit of maturing these programs, um, I strongly recommend adopting an industry best practice framework uh, to guide sort of the recipe for success to customizing these programs specifically to your organization. 
I think many of us throughout our careers have run into, you know, some leader coming into the organization and, and you essentially hear a copy and paste from wherever it is they came from and whatever they did and just pasting that into this organization. And that may or may not fit. And I would suggest in the world of, of security and privacy, that's probably not going to be adequate. There needs to be a lot of customization in the organization. Um, <clears throat> it, 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 another key thing, and, and we've really got around to this here in my environment, in probably our, our second year before we were really able to do this, it's to integrate these security and privacy capabilities into the business processes across the organization. And by doing that, you're ensuring that you have the appropriate level of visibility into any changes in your environment. Uh, for example, from a privacy perspective, you, you get to do your privacy impact assessments on that change that's about to occur or a security assessment on the same kind of a thing. So I, I think uh, for those who are maybe not very well integrated into their organizations from these capability perspectives, I would offer a few examples that I think are really important and probably common across most organizations here. Uh, your procurement process. Everybody has some kind of a procurement process. And you know, to go to an extreme, you don't want the well-intentioned HR guy or the sales guy to go out to Office Depot, grab a computer and bring it back and connect it to his office, right? Uh, to, the, to the network, you, you, you want to follow a particular process. And this is where from a security and privacy perspective, you can engage and have a hook into that process to make sure that you're doing your, your evaluations before uh, monies are, are, and transactions are occurring. Uh, another a uh, key process for us here at Hyundai is uh, master service agreements and statements of work, right, where you're negotiating with business partners um, on, on various services, maybe products, making sure that, uh, you know, from a privacy and, and security perspective that you have the right language in there to convey your requirements to another organization and, and ensure that there's accountability in, in language there and, and the legal department certainly helps with that and facilitates that. Uh, an IT change management process is another one of those key processes to make sure that you're engaged in there so that if there's any changes to the environment that could impact the appropriate use of data or the security of data, you're, you're getting those before the changes, you're affecting change before the changes are, are actually taking place. Um, a, a few others would be perhaps information sharing requests, which, which we have here in our organization, uh, so that before any information is being shared with other organizations, there's a formal process to go through. Um, another question I would ask, you know, these leaders of these capabilities would is are you in the policy and procedure reviews? So that as those, uh, that important documentation, that governance documentation is being updated or developed, are you ensuring that some of the language there, some of the direction there is not in conflict, maybe with some privacy law or some security requirements? Um, a couple of others here, BRDs, SRDs, so business requirements documents, uh, system requirements documents, these are great places for 
you know, a, a security component, a privacy component to make sure that before any system is developed, acquired, or introduced into the new environment, certain requirements are baked in to that development process to make sure that it meets requirements by the time it's released into the, into the environment. And the, and the last important process that I would offer here would be a vendor management program of some kind. If an organization does not have sort of a master vendor management program, at least from a security and privacy perspective, I think it's important to start that kind of a program to where you're doing assessments on, on vendors along the way. Um, the last the last piece here that I would offer um, in maturing these programs, and this is just an ongoing thing that you always need to do, it's the training and awareness piece. Training and awareness programs, they're absolutely crucial to changing the way any workforce thinks or behaves. And um, I, it, I think, I think it's, it's very important to make these programs very deliberate and perpetual throughout the year. Uh, I've spent a lot of years in some very highly classified environments, very sensitive, very secure, and believe it or not, even in those environments, I encountered, especially in the earlier days, a whole lot of annual refresher training, right? Uh, I personally am not a fan of that, especially in today's threat and risk environment around data security and, and privacy uh, concerns. I, I think your program needs to be more deliberate than that. You need to have some themes in that training and awareness program that then drive particular uh, training courses or events, awareness events, um, throughout the year, not just once or twice a year. Uh, to make sure that you're reaching the whole audience and staying fresh in their minds as they do whatever they do throughout the day. So those are those are some I, I think some key items that I would consider uh, for for most organizations as you're trying to mature these kinds of capabilities. Cool. Yes, thank you, thank you, Eddie. Um, you know, for all of those best practices and just strategies for lenders to really be thinking about. Um, you know, I, there's also recent uh, legislation like the California Consumer Privacy Act, um, and it's causing lenders to rethink their information protection strategies. Uh, what's, what's it take to keep up with the data security compliance for lenders? Uh, Richik, would you like to uh, you know, provide some insight for that? Yes, I think that in, in Eddie's answer to the previous question, really provides a really good framework for <clears throat> what you need to be doing in this environment because you know these statutory changes um, and regulatory you know advice that you get from different regulators uh, can you know affect how you're handling this information so if you are already in an organization that's in the mature stage as Eddie has just kind of described and you have these processes in place um, really reacting to some of these these statutory uh, requirements probably is something that you've already anticipated and we're ready to move on. You already have a very good idea of where your your data is, especially in most of these statutes that we're going to be talking about are they, they concern uh, you know PII, personally identifiable information, um, and so you have a good idea of where that is, what you're holding, who you're holding it for, 
um, and what you need to do with it. Uh, so now when you look at these statutes, really most of these statutes are kind of built around that sort of framework. And a lot of them then ask, you know, you need to be able to provide an individual the opportunity to, if they don't want to have their information sold, to make sure that that isn't happening. Also, if you if they want to get a, get access to all the information that, that you are holding for them, that you can provide that to them. So if you just take those two things, um, individually, they don't seem like very difficult things to do. However, when you think about a system-wide um, data management system, information is both really, really valuable, but also a liability. And in this instance, you know, it's valuable to the to the to the institution because it contains all the stuff about their about their customer and how they can best treat them. But when they start asking for specific information about that stuff, you know, it can be a liability if you've not organized yourself in a way that you can immediately respond to those requests on a granular level for that information. Um, and so what you really need to be doing is as you're looking at these statutes, you need to be evaluating how are you processing your information, what can you do with that information, um, and, and how best uh, can we adapt and, and change our system to address these sorts of regulatory requirements that we have. And that actually will require not just, you know, an IT function, but really it will, it will require you to get people from every aspect of your organization together to talk about these questions. How are you using this data? What is it being used for? You know, some people might not realize within the organization that they have permission by the customer to use the information in a marketing format, and so people in their marketing department have been using that information. Um, but no one clued them in when they started looking at, you know, these responses to regulatory intake, where even though some of that information is there. So you really need to get all the stakeholders that access the information, and sometimes the best way to do that is actually do, to do a a survey of your systems to see who is accessing the information and how so that you can then kind of gather those people up and just say, hey, listen, what's going on? We need to have a better understanding of what's being used here. Um, so you want all the people that are using the information to be around so that you can then talk about how should we kind of rebuild our system or modify our system, hopefully, to address these these new requirements. A lot of this, you know, now kind of falls into um, uh, the popular notion of design thinking, where you gather a number of people together and you're uh, to examine a common problem, and you're, everyone in that in that group is also empowered to kind of let's you know let's look into is this the best way for us to keep this information now that we know that these people are accessing it. But even more importantly, to ask the fundamental question of why are they accessing it? Do they really need it? Um, and those are the types of questions that kind of underlie a lot of this legislation that you're seeing out there, it's to protect the individual's rights to have their information, you know, used, I'm going to say as little as possible, but it's, it's more meant as, meant as efficiently as possible, that it's not being, you know, it's not being sold, it's not being uh, used for anything other than what they, what you, the institution needs to do to service that account. Richick, those are all some great points. I. Just an example, and, and, and you, you mentioned just one word that really resonated with me there, and it was collaboration. Collaboration with the business, right? So for CCPA in particular here in, in our organization, and it's not just CCPA, it's really any kind of new regulatory environment that comes your way. Richie, one of your points was essentially, I heard, was 
hey, a legal team should not be determining how we're impacted in a vacuum. It needs to reach out to other business partners and other stakeholders to better understand the business as it relates to these new requirements coming in. And so it's in that spirit we here at Hyundai have uh, established a, a little working group uh, across multiple functions to ensure that we have the right representation to understand how this new thing is coming into our environment and exactly where are the impacts and to what degree, therefore we know what to do to prepare for that. So great. Yeah, I'm a firm believer that culture beats strategy every time. And so a legal department and even even if they, and, and an infosec department or a, or a privacy department can create great strategy with respect to how to um, address these new requirements. Um, and they may come from anywhere. They may come, you know, we're talking about government requirements, but they may come from a client or a vendor. Um, if you are trying to implement a program that does not fundamentally mesh with the culture, the culture will figure out a way to get around your strategy. And it is much easier to go and figure out what's, how are things being used, what's the culture of use of our information, and to the extent possible, incorporate those things into the strategy. Uh, and, and sometimes some things that you, you'll have to make some decisions that we're not going to be doing this anymore and this is why. But there may be more efficiencies that come from under, better understanding the culture of use uh, when you're trying to react to these types of things. We're going to take a short break to thank our podcast sponsor, McGlinchey Stafford. Whether counseling clients on their national retail and lease programs, defending lenders against fraud allegations or warranty claims, or representing companies in government investigations, McGlinchey Stafford's experienced attorneys are there every step of the way. The team's knowledge is called on by clients of all sizes to advise on matters affecting the auto finance industry, including origination, servicing, asset recovery, and licensing. McGlinchey Stafford's team of lawyers working with the auto finance industry includes nationwide leaders in regulatory and compliance counsel, as well as skilled advisors in insurance regulation, cybersecurity, dealer matters, and litigation providing a holistic approach to protecting auto lenders' interests. McGlinchey's deep bench and comprehensive experience in compliance and regulatory work from consumer finance to insurance is matched by few law firms. Whether a client requires a simple response, practical guidance, industry insight, or a more detailed, complex analysis, McGlinchey Stafford is trusted to help. Learn how McGlinchey's attorneys can help you reach your business goals at mcglinchey.com slash auto hyphen finance. Now, let's get back to the program. Mm -hmm. Thank you both for the perspective on uh, both ends there. Um, Eddie, I do have a question for you. Um, you know, how can lenders control the risk uh, their company may face when they uh, transfer personal information from one entity to another. Yeah, so I'll, so when I hear personal information, so I would, you know, I would consider both the, you know, the P, consumer PII, uh, employee PII, it's all sensitive data in one way or another. I, I think of, first of all, front-end controls on, on how to protect that, and then you know, there's another item here I would I would say is a back-end control that is essential. 
So on the front end, um, for maybe the one-off and infrequent sharing needs where you're sharing sensitive or personal information external to your organization, I recommend some kind of a, a formal approval process. At least that's what we've done here at Hyundai uh, to ensure that there's appropriate protections uh, being considered before the sharing actually occurs. So here at Hyundai, it's, it's uh, information sharing requests is a form that we have and it's a process that we follow um, again for those less frequent needs to share uh, you, you know a requester would fill out the form and the privacy and infosex take that as input evaluate you know any concerns around sharing that information again there might be great intentions between say your marketing team and some external organizations to share information but they may not be aware that we by privacy law and maybe by our privacy notice we're not allowed to share that information that way so uh, that that's that's so that's the kind of control we have in place here as it relates to some of the technologies to actually, you know, do the work for you there uh, during the transferring, you, you can use, you know, various technologies, but the common ones I would say would be secure email, uh, secure FTP or a secure website. Um, we have used box.com here quite a bit over the years as a good solution. Um, so that, that's what I would do for the, 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 the one-offs or the infrequents. The, the longer term um, uh, sharing and, and more frequent and maybe even daily uh, processing of your sensitive information, you, you wouldn't want to do what I just described. It would be far too burdensome. So uh, this is where I would recommend something like an information sharing agreement where you would work with your legal team and the external party and come to agreement on what you'll be sharing and what the limitations are and what the boundaries are around that. Uh, you might also maybe use a, a master services agreement or a statement of work to record some of those requ requirements and, and agreements. Um, and again, whatever you agree to there, it, it really needs to focus on the whole spectrum of, of the data. And that's, you know, all the way from the beginning, data collection, the use of that data, the transmission of that data. Uh, and any disposition processes. And, and as, as I think of disposition, it's important not to forget your records retention policy and, and schedule that most organizations have. Make sure that you know, you're, you're, you're conveying your uh, records retention schedule requirements in that agreement also. Make sure that there's awareness and compliance. So that's what I would do on the front end uh, on the back-end control, um, th this again is where you need a vendor management program, and even if there's not a vendor management program, there at least needs to be a vendor security, a vendor security assessments that, that occur on a regular basis. And in and, 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 and setting that up, if it's not set up, you need to understand who all your vendors are. And I, and I would suggest <coughs> uh, categorizing them into maybe high, medium, low, Risks, putting them in those buckets, depending on you know what they what access they actually have to your data and how sensitive it is and what level of protection it needs, and and as you bucket them, you can then determine well how often do we need to perform these assessments on vendors and make sure that their their posture, their security controls, 
are are adequate um, according to the original agreement and understanding whenever we we first entered that relationship. Uh, and you can also determine at that point whether you do remote assessments or on-site assessments too. So those are uh, some some things that come to mind for me on you know how you control the risk around sharing that information with external parties. Mm-hmm. One thing that uh, I'd like to add, Eddie kind of implicitly talked about it. When you put these things, when you put these vendors and or contractors into buckets, and you're trying to determine uh, the risk level. You can't sacrifice, <coughs> pardon me, simplicity, uh, I'm sorry, efficiency in for the sake of simplicity. So it's simple then to create just two categories, you know, people that work here and vendors. You really need to create separate levels of security for these types of, of vendors and contractors once you've sorted them out. Because, you know, it, the, the risk they bring is something that is a tangible uh, thing that must be assessed all the time. So sometimes someone will say, well, you know what, we'll just give, and I think Eddie and I have talked about this in the past, we'll just give Jim the same rights that Mary had uh, because they have a similar role and um, they have a similar title. That's not how that should work. Jim should only have those things that Jim needs. And if Mary had access to things that Jim had, that Jim doesn't need access to, Jim shouldn't get access to them. Um, and if you don't take those things seriously, that is something that can really put uh, uh, systems at risk. Um, just because we're trying to keep things easy doesn't mean that we're, that's the right thing to do. Great points, Richard. You're right on. I'll, I'll comment on that here in, a little later. And a little mm-hmm. later. Mm-hmm. And you know, Richard, just uh, you know, going off that, you know, how can lenders uh, begin to uh, you know establish that framework uh, for action? Uh, officers and directors uh, to take, uh, you know, uh, strategies for protecting themselves and their organizations from liability. Yeah, if I, you know, you need to spend time, I spend a lot of time counseling boards on things like this. And one of the first things I do is try to explain to them what their fiduciary duties are to the company. Um, And most of the time they understand them in the context of, you know, business fiduciary duties. I'm, you know, I'm not supposed to be taking you know, be self have it, be part of self-interested deals. I'm not supposed to be, um, you know, I'm supposed to take action in the best interest of the company. Those rules are still in place, but they change a little bit when you're talking about cybersecurity issues because really then those directors are taking on the responsibility of educating themselves as to what is going on in the data environment for their company. So not only they, they already understand what their fiduciary duties are, but now you have to explain to them that in this context, that would require you to have a really good understanding of, at a broad level, you know, what is our data management system? That can get as granular as what are the most important pieces of data that we have? Uh, if you are a, uh, um, a consumer-facing company, a lot, sometimes it is your, your customer list and the information about the customers and what they're doing. That's very important. That's you know, one of the crown jewels that you want to protect. It also could be in that same thing the IP that you've developed um, that you've been selling, you know, that make the products that you sell to your customers. You have to understand what the different things that you're trying to protect are and what systems you have in place to protect them. Um, and directors should be able to answer. I don't, you know, they don't need to have a granular knowledge of everything, but they should be able to answer broadly. You know, what those, you know, what are we trying to protect? How are we trying to protect it? And then, you know, also then talk about the. Um, 
programs that are in place to kind of train and educate them and others within the organization about how the organization is protecting that data. Because really what we're talking about here is a top-down, and Eddie said this at the very beginning, leadership is very important, and that leadership has to start with your board. And your board really should understand the, um, the help kind of help with the, the permutation of, of cyber vigilance throughout the organization. And they should be understanding a lot of the broader plans and controls, also some of the broader detailed incident response plans if something should go wrong. Um, and also, you know, it's always at the end of the list, but it's also, it's very important. You know, if something happens and we need, and the organization needs to, to address something, how does the insurance kick in? How does the insurance help the overall organization with respect to addressing and remediating some of these, some of these needs? So I'd organize, you know, again, the two big principles are what do we have and how are we prote protecting it? And then offshoots of those things have to just kind of permeate throughout the organization. And the board should be able to answer those questions just as much as you know some of the uh, some of the uh, managers throughout the organization. But you really want everyone to have a good understanding of what we have, how we're protecting it, because that's the best way to kind of create a a system of cyber vigilance throughout the organization. Richie, that's very well stated. Uh -huh. You you resonate with me and make me think of all kinds of things there. Uh, you know, just from the perspective of a common citizen like you and me, reading the papers and the media and, and reading about there's just one more data breach, right? And, and, as, and as especially law enforcement or forensic, and, uh, forensic investigators get in there and they, they start to learn ultimately from a root cause perspective, I would suggest why the programs were inefficient or ineffective in the first place. Uh, is is around leadership not being engaged, right? So so how do you protect yourself as an organization? And, and Richick said it well. It, it's you better demonstrate that your leadership is engaged with a reasonable level of oversight and do care to avoid being found negligent or, or maybe irresponsible with consumer data. Uh, whether you're found irresponsible by some legal authority. Or whether it's in the court of opinion, you better care from a leadership perspective because those discussions do not go well with regulators, law enforcement, or consumers for that matter. And they need to be regular. They have to recognize that this stuff is not a yearly event. It's a year-round process. If you look at some of the, the very few cases that are out there right now with respect to board liability um, and for cyber incident, incidents generally, the thing that seems to save these companies and boards is that the, is the fact that those boards met regularly. They talked about what was going on. They had an understanding of what was going to happen. Um, they they knew what was going on. Ultimately, there was a cyber there was a there was some sort of incident that triggered questions as to what they were doing. But it's because they had all those meetings and they could say, "Listen, we did everything that we could do." Sometimes, you know, there are other you know something happens and. You know, we had the processes in place to assess them as, as to how we would react, and that's why we were able to minimize, you know, the damage from this thing. You need to make sure that these are regular things, that they, they meet on a regular basis, that you have committees and subcommittees if necessary that are constantly evaluating these things so that you can prove to a third party, be it a regulator or a court, that you've discharged those duties. It's really important to understand that if you keep your head in the sand on these things, that's when you're going to get it chopped off. Mm -hmm. 
Definitely. Um, you know, I, I, I love the way you, you put that, Richick. Um, you know, Eddie, I do have uh, kind of a, a bundle of questions uh, for you. Um, you know, how can lenders uh, better understand where sensitive data is located and which systems store, process, and transmit it? And what are some of those key considerations regarding information protection strategies, uh, including identity and access management controls? And how can lenders ensure that different staff and, and roles access only the sensitive data elements that are necessary to perform their duties? Yeah, great questions. So, I, so the first part of your question there is is where is the data located and, and how is it used, how is it processed, how is it flow? Um, so I was in that position with this organization about three or four years ago, and, and that was because I guess about five years ago we we stood up the information protection department. So these these capabilities were not really formalized in this organization. So. You know, as you evolve, you, you need to be able to answer this question because that's sort of why you're in business as a security component or a privacy component, right? It's it's where's that important stuff that you care about, and how's it being used, and is it adequately protected? So, in, in our experience here, and I think this is pretty common wherever you go, if, if an organization uh, does not accurately have that data uh, captured. Um, hopefully you do. Hopefully you have an IT organization or a data management organization that has ideally illustrative diagrams that, that capture, you know, organizations that, that touch your data, systems, applications, data flows of all of that, right? But, but if they don't, then I think that it, it starts with, and I don't think you can avoid this piece, you have to do the painstaking approach, especially if you're a large organization, of going out and start interviewing various stakeholders. You, you have to get perspective somehow. And and I would say this is just, you know, this is sort of like putting a puzzle together. You, you need to go out and talk to various people to find various pieces of the puzzle that you're eventually going to, you know, hopefully it shows a clear picture at some point. Um, as you gather that and as you start to diagram and record document these these inputs um, you can also use some technologies you, you should not completely rely on technologies because they're only going to show you know there's limitations there so they can certainly augment um, your your the interview process by especially tools like DLP and Informatica has some some cool tools. There's a lot of cool tools out there where you can do some string searches, for example, to where you can look across your enterprise, even on you know hard disks or any kind of storage device, and start looking for strings that might look like a social security number or a you know a, a credit card number or whatever the sensitive data element is, and, and you can uh, identify where a lot of that data is that way. Um, in the end, after you find out where your data is located, you need to perform a risk assessment to ensure that adequate controls are in place to protect it. Um, so I, I think that's, that's sort of a dual-pronged approach to figuring out where it's located and does it have the right controls. Um, when considering the whole identity and access management piece associated with this, and, and Richick hit on this really well, um, 
it, it's important for your your security leader, your privacy leader. Together, there, there needs to be some kind of identity and access management strategy, <clears throat> um, especially these days, because there's technologies that can really help automate a lot of the identity and access management processes that historically probably all of us started out doing manually, right? So that whenever somebody is first coming into an organization, they're onboarded, you know, however we communicated in a process to, hey, put them in the HR system and then go over there and get the IT guys to create some kind of identity for them and maybe it's multiple identities and make sure it has the right access and <laughs> And by the way, you know, Richick, I was I was sort of chuckling in the background here as you were talking about, you know, the whole concept of mirroring other users, right? Hey, just make them look like Joe, because Joe, we know Joe has the right eye. Just make them look like Joe. Well, that's absolutely not. There's a lot of flaws with that. And you can imagine over the years as these people move throughout the organization in different roles, uh, maybe over 15 years, maybe they've played five different roles and they've gotten the various, they've accumulated the access along the way. At some point, you know, what if Joe becomes disgruntled and, and hasn't been fired yet and is not out of your environment, right, but it becomes disgruntled, now he has essentially a whole lot of access that he shouldn't have. So there's, there's obviously risk associated with that. Um, also part of that identity and access management strategy is onboarding, moving throughout the organization, but also terminating. Whenever people leave your organization at 11 o'clock tomorrow, is their full access deprovisioned across all your systems? You take some of these large organizations, <clears throat> I'll, I'll use an IT administrator as a, a really good example because oftentimes they have administrative access to maybe hundreds or thousands of systems. But whenever Jane, the admin, leaves today, how do we know that we've gone across all the systems where she had access, admin privileges, how do we know, right? And if you, if you can't answer that as, uh, you know, this kind of uh, uh, capability in the organization, that, that becomes a problem. Um, so, and, and then finally, leave of absence. As people are placed on leave of absence, how do you handle that in your identity and access management strategy? Right, so if they're going to be out for four months, do you delete their accounts and everything associated with them, or um, do you just disable them and just wait for them to come back? Right, so policy should drive that in your organization. A back-end control on all of that is on a regular basis. Maybe it's monthly. It depends on the organization. Uh, you need to perform certifications on these IDs, uh, these identities, and the access that they have. Uh, you know, somebody probably on your security team needs to, you know, drive that process across all the management across the organization to ensure that, hey, this list of identities reports in under you. Are they still here? Do they still need that identity? And do they need the associated access? So those are some thoughts that come to mind for me there, Nicole. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Eddie. And, you know, last question for you, Richard. Um, what are some of those best practices around uh, controlling access to data uh, internally? Yeah, I will, uh, you know, Eddie covered a, a number of things there. I'll say rather than best practices, I'd, I'd go with fundamental principles. And the fundamental principles have to be you should only give access to 
people access to the information that they need to do their job. And that will change as they get different roles within the organization, just as Eddie talked about. It is going to increase um, in certain areas, or in sometimes you're going to want to decrease access to information if their job no longer requires them to have access to certain systems. Um, for example, you know, you might want, and then there's a certain, I'm sorry, there's a certain uh, category of information that needs to have, you know, what we call dual controls. It's so important that no one person can access it by themselves. You have to have two people to access, access that information. Uh, kind of fundamental example of that would be um, many companies have rules that to write a check for more than $10,000, you need to have two signatures on it. That is a rudimentary dual control. So two people need to do to achieve something, need to do something to achieve a function. That is the same sort of principle with respect to, you know, how do we get access to be able to change the way that certain customer information databases are, are held. You want to make a, you know, those things might need dual controls in order to access the system to make changes to it. And by having to have dual controls, it eliminates, or I should say, it reduces the, the possibility that any one person can go and monkey around in a system. Um, so you need to understand that people should only have access to the information that they need, but that there's some information that needs to be that needs to be double protected with additional controls. You know, it's amazing to me just taking that from taking that check example again. You may have a policy that says, uh, you know, two people need to write a check for more than ten thousand dollars, but that same company will allow any a single person to execute a wire transfer of of ten thousand dollars. You know, again, the dual controls really should extend to the wire transfer aspect as well. Because if it was good enough for the paper money, it has to be good enough for the electronic money. And those are the types of things that you need to be looking at in your system that do our rules that we have make sense and are we implementing them properly? And like I said before, and are the people uh, that have access to our information, are they the right people to have access to that information? If you take those two fundamental principles, that really will help you guide you with best practices because then you can kind of organize, again, your practices around your culture, but let the principles dictate what needs to be done. Richick, one of the one of the things you make me think of there, you remind me of of actually multiple organization in today's world of spear phishing, where you know there's there's phishing attempts coming into your organization, maybe emulating your CEO or some senior leader who is sending that message over to the Treasury Department or over to the accounting department wanting to move funding right now ASAP, work through lunch, whatever it takes to get this done. And it's really not the CEO in the first place, right? So uh, to Richick's point about dual control there, um, it can really help. It's a good backstop for those kinds of attempts to make sure that there's due diligence done rather than emotional reactions to some command. And sometimes just using that example is another is a Another teaching point, you know, also there are, you, if you establish specific protocols that are not wavered from with respect to those types of transactions, it's a lot easier for the person that gets that email that says, listen, I want you to transfer a million dollars by the end of the day so we can close this deal right now. If it doesn't come in the right format that it's supposed to, that can clue the person in uh, to realizing that this might not be on the up and up and I need to go check with somebody else. 
Well, I, I do feel that, you know, we could probably talk about this topic and on this podcast all day. Um, and I would absolutely love to do that. But unfortunately, I do have to conclude our podcast today. Um, you know, I want to you know thank you both so much uh, for joining us uh, on this episode. Um, you know, please stay tuned to autofinanceexcellence.org for more great podcasts.